it was a watershed moment when suddenly everything had changed for Russia and for Ukraine and in many ways for the world. You know, one year later, Kyiv stands and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. The Americans stand with you and the world stands with you. We have no fear, nor should anyone in the world have it. Ukraine's gained this victory and it gives us courage, which inspires the entire world. Analysts argue it's going to be a long war. Can Ukraine hold? Will the West continue to support Ukraine? What are the dangers if the fighting drags on for years? To discuss about this war, the relationship of Russia and the West, and wartime Putinism, we have invited Michael Kimaz, professor of history at the Catholic University of America, author of the book The Abandonment of the West, and regular contributor at the Foreign Affairs. Today's The Cosmos podcast is in cooperation with the Institute of International Relations and with its executive director, Misino Afendouli. I'm Marilisa Anastasopoulou. Thank you very much for this opportunity to have you in Athens, Michael Kimac. It's a pleasure, I mean, to, to participate in this fantastic seminar that you organized with the Harman Institute. And... Uh, I'm glad that uh, you, you find some time to talk about uh, issues of common concern with Marilisa Anastasopoulou. Uh, so let's start. I mean, I think that yesterday you had a seminar on the scenarios for the end of the crisis. So let's, let's start our, our discussion with this. Well, first of all, thank you so much for hosting this discussion and, and uh, also for hosting me in this extraordinary uh, city. It's a great pleasure to be with you both and it's a great pleasure to be here uh, in Athens and in, in Greece. Uh, I think that the particulars of the end of the war are enormously difficult to predict and I won't even try to predict uh, the particulars of its conclusion. I think the one generalization one can make with confidence is that this is going to be a very long conflict. Uh, and that even if there is a ceasefire or what we could describe as an armistice, as there was in Korea in the 1950s, I doubt that it will be a real end to the conflict. That as long as Putin may, stays in power in Russia and has the ambition to control Ukraine, uh, that he will do so, he will try to do so, uh, and that he will have the resources for a very long struggle uh, and fight. And so I think as a consequence on our side, And I have in mind here the government of Greece, the government of the United States, the European Union, the NATO uh, alliance. The first virtue that we have to cultivate is patience. That if we assume a quick or a happy ending to the conflict, we will become frustrated and disappointed. I mean, the sort of the publics of our country's public opinion uh, and our objectives could be quite difficult uh, to realize. But if we can maintain patience, I think a lot of the structural strengths are on the Western side. Uh, and on the Ukrainian side of the conflicts that begins with the resilience of Ukraine as a society, uh, its growing military capacities, and the enormous economic resources uh, of the Western and really the global alliance behind uh, Ukraine. So 
I don't think that we will 100% defeat Russia in Ukraine. I think that Russia will probably maintain control over some portion of Ukrainian territory, Crimea, quite possibly, and, and, and even beyond Crimea. But I think beyond that, we can push Russia back quite far uh, and achieve something like containment during the Cold War and succeed through that method. But once again, I would emphasize the virtue of patience. Um, you mentioned that it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a long war. I mean, everyone uh, talks about that. However, how this war is going to affect uh, the area? I mean, is it going to continue as a war between uh, Ukraine and Russia with uh, powers supporting them? Or will we see a change, like, for example, uh, NATO being involved, other um, countries supporting Russia more openly, Uh, how the geopolitical context will be shaped uh, if we assume that this war will continue for a while? I think on the level of intentions, it's clear that NATO does not want to be directly involved in the conflict. It's now 13 months into the war. President Biden is absolutely clear about not sending uniformed American soldiers onto the territory uh, of Ukraine uh, and of not making NATO a uh, direct participant. I think it's also the case on the Russian side even though Putin has been radical and highly aggressive, that he has limited himself. He has not bombed weapon supply routes into Ukraine from NATO member states, and he too has limits. So I think that on the level of intentions, I would not predict a conflict between NATO and Russia of a direct kind. There's, of course, the possibility of an accident that pushes us in that direction. And we've already had experience of that, missiles that have gone into Romania, a missile that went into Poland, and We at first thought that those were Russian missiles. Maybe they were not Russian missiles. It looks like some of those were perhaps Ukrainian. At any rate, that's how you could imagine the war spreading, even though neither side would wish it to become a NATO-Russian confrontation, an accident could push us uh, in that direction. But the final point I would make in this regard, if we can sort of survive without an accident, is that Russia's conventional military capacities are so much less than they were at the beginning of the war. So even though Russia might have dreams and fantasies of pushing Poland or Latvia or Lithuania in some military sense, it doesn't have the means to do so. In fact, Russia has been struggling to take the city of Bakhmut uh, in eastern Ukraine now for about four or five months. So if Russia is unable to take that city or it takes it very, very slowly, forget military campaigns in the Baltic Republics uh, or in Poland. And I think that that's important to emphasize. Russia is a great threat and it's a great challenge, but it has reduced itself in terms of conventional military power. Would you see a turning point in the conflict during the year? Meaning, I mean, we, we, we have seen up to now a rather steady path of the war. Would you see any upward and the escalation or de-escalation afterwards? Well, I think that a great deal depends on the coming Ukrainian uh, offensive. And um, if it's unbelievably successful, then some of the escalation concerns we've had at the beginning of the conflict about Russia perhaps considering a nuclear option, uh, some of those will return. I don't think that that's the direction Russia is really going to go in, but the threats could return of that, uh, of, uh, of that uh, scenario. Uh, on the other hand, if, uh, if the conflict becomes sort of less successful uh, for Ukrainian terms, if the, if the offensive doesn't go as far as one would Uh, when we wish it to go, I think that the element of political economy is going to come to the fore. It's already been very significant uh, in this conflict. I think it's accurately described as a war of attrition. And so in that sense, 
the escalatory options that Russia might pursue, and it's already pursuing these, these techniques, is to bomb the electrical supply of Ukraine, to bomb the water supply, to try to make Ukraine dysfunctional uh, as a society. Uh, and that, of course, is potentially very uh, dangerous or potentially disastrous, disastrous if Russia would start to make uh, advances there. So you have you know, the, the change in the nature of the conflict that could go in a Ukrainian direction, um, which evokes certain escalatory risks on the Russian side. Uh, and then you have the Russian pursuit of, of, of devastating uh, tactics and techniques against Ukrainian society, which if they would start to succeed, I really worry about the electric grid of Ukraine in this respect. You could also see a dramatic change in the conflict. But my guess is that this kind of back and forth, you know, movement of the line of contact 100 kilometers to the east, 100 kilometers to the west, that's probably more likely what we're going to see over the course of the next six or eight months. Um, but in the meantime, we see that there are some issues in the area, like with Moldova, the, the, there's a threat in Moldova. We see the protests there were in Georgia. How this will affect the area in general, not only uh, the two countries, Ukraine and Russia? Well, there are many tragedies that I associate with the war. One is the transition of Russia into a outright dictatorship, which is the road that Russia has been traveling for a long time, but it got faster during the war. The most important tragedy of the war is the effect that it's had on the people of Ukraine, the incredible suffering, the refugees, the uh, effect on children, etc. But there's a third tragedy that you could describe with the war, uh, which is the nature of competition now between Russia and the West or Russia and the world outside of its borders. That competition is also not new. It certainly goes back to 2014, and in the case of Georgia, goes back to the war of of 2008. But what we have now, given the nature of Western competition with Russia and Russian competition with the West, is something of a zero-sum dynamic that, to me, reminds me of the Cold War. So Georgia is not just an issue for Russia in terms of where Georgia may go. Georgia is now part of this larger chessboard of competition between Russia uh, and the West. And that's true, I think, for Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, certainly for Moldova, as you mentioned, you could f factor the Balkans uh, into this equation. Wherever there is some degree of uncertainty, it will now be filtered through this very intensive competition. Uh, and it's clear that Russia will push as much as possible for adverse consequences uh, for our side. And so we just have to, I suppose, accept and live with that reality. But it makes it a bit different from, from the situation in the past. I think in the past, you might say that the problem of Moldova is the problem of Moldova. It's a discrete problem. Now it's part of this larger pattern, uh, and that pattern is one of zero-sum competition. Yes, I mean, Russia is trying to create black holes, let's say, in the European continent. Ukraine, of course, is the main theater, but as you said, Georgia, Moldova, other countries around may be vulnerable, and they certainly are vulnerable. So how you anticipate the debate in U.S. will evolve in the coming months regarding the support? Because U.S. is the main supporter. Whatever we say, you, if, if the, it was not for U.S., Ukraine would be more exposed, let's say, to Russian aggression. I think one important element of the debate in the United States, and I wouldn't want to be too optimistic on this account, but one one important element of the debate is to see how far the United States and its Western allies and partners have come since February 2022. When you look back to that moment, the realistic and acute fear was that Ukraine would fall, that it would be partitioned by Russia, and that the border of this conflict between Russia and the West would be very much 
on the doorstep of the NATO alliance and that this would be potentially a direct war between Russia and NATO. That was not an unrealistic fear and concern in February 2022 at the beginning of the war. So I think measured by that benchmark, what NATO and the United States have accomplished is really something very significant. They have helped Ukraine not to defeat Russia, but to set Russia back very considerably. And I think in terms of the defense of the NATO alliance, in the most important sense, the territorial defense of the NATO alliance, I think NATO has very little to worry about in the short to medium term. There's just nothing that Russia can do. And that's, of course, wonderful for the alliance. So it's important to acknowledge some of the successes as we look at concerns, fears, uh, and worries about the future. But the challenge of those countries that are not in the NATO alliance, and this would, of course, include Ukraine, uh, but it would also include the Balkans and the South Caucasus, that's pretty formidable. Uh, and I suspect it can't be amalgamated into one single challenge. It does seem to vary quite a lot. Uh, case by case. And so I would hope on the U.S. side that there would just again be the patience and the creativity uh, to deal with it. And perhaps you could look at it this way, that what the United States should try to do is to build on the successes of NATO in the last 13 months and just expand the perimeter uh, of that success to the degree to the degree possible. But the way I would frame it in the American context is with, with, with a degree of optimism about what can be achieved uh, and what has been achieved. I worry a little bit sometimes about the rhetoric of crisis. We are in the midst of a very great crisis, European, you know, world historical, uh, but not everything is to be determined by this atmosphere and aura of crisis. Some of it needs to be determined by, you know, sort of will uh, and achievement and to a degree of optimism. Um, I have, uh, I would like you to tell us about wartime Putinism that you have written about. Uh, what do you mean by that? Can you explain how the system works within Russia? Well, there have been two surprises to me when it comes to Russia during the war. The first is that there's not more of an anti-war movement. Uh, that was perhaps naive on my part to expect, but I did think in the first few weeks of the war that more Russians would would rise up. Of course, there are 20,000 Russians who have been imprisoned and many have left the country, but there isn't a big anti-war movement to speak of, as far as I know. Uh, and the other surprise is, is that I had thought of Putin as a somewhat more cynical man than he may be. He is, of course, quite cynical, uh, but I didn't see this ideological component. It seemed like the deal between the Russian people and the Russian government was is the Russian government deals with politics and Russians can kind of do what they want if they don't interfere with the political running of the country, uh, and there seemed to be that distance. And so the way in which the war has mobilized Russian society and sort of incorporated Russian society has been something of a surprise to me. Uh, and so wartime Putinism is this, and I think it's a system of half steps uh, and half measures, but the distance that Russians had from the government, that sort of apolitical nature, that has ended. And what Putin has done is not to put the country exactly on a wartime footing, uh, it's not quite there, uh, but very much to militarize Russian society uh, and, you know, to make war in some respects the defining feature uh, of, the country's, uh, of the country's life. And at the same time, in the kind of tactical, clever way that Putin can be, is to insulate some Russian communities from the effects of the war. And I think he's studied Russian history to the degree that he knows that he needs the loyalty of Moscow and St. Petersburg. So he insulates those cities from some of the effects of the war, Mobilization is among the poorer communities, more peripheral, more uh, rural, and that too is what's making wartime Putinism uh, function. Final point I would make about wartime Putinism is that the Russian population, as far as I know, is not strongly in favor of the war. It came as a shock to them. It was a surprise. It's still hard to understand what the war is really about. 
but they are anti-anti-war. They want to win the war. It's a war that they don't want to lose. And Putin has really exploited that as the foundation for his approach. If we can envisage the end of the war with a solution, how can the West influence the course inside Russia? How we can help the Russian civil society, I mean, to become uh, more, more vocal? It's very, very limited. I think we have very little leverage over Russian society. We have less and less contact in, in the war, and I think this is conscious on Putin's part, is putting a, war, a wall up between Russia and the West. Uh, I've heard that Russia, the Russian government is encouraging the canceling of English classes, uh, is in a way trying to consciously trying to push Russian society away from the West, and there's probably not a great deal that we can... Uh, that we can do about it. The best approach I can think of, again, goes back to the first few years of the Cold War, that we can contain the spread of Russian military power. We can't defeat Russia, I think. It's a nuclear power and it's a large country. It's not really defeatable, but we can contain the spread of Russian nuclear power. And perhaps that will lead in Ukraine to a kind of, not an end of the war exactly, but a sort of stabilization of the war. Maybe a bit like the tensions that were there in, in Germany in the 1940s. You have the Berlin airlift in 1948, But after that, there is a moderation of that tension. And if there's a moderation of that tension, you know, sort of maybe that will in, in introduce certain pressures within Russia uh, that concern the domestic political situation and some of the damage that Putin has done with the war and Russians will come to a conclusion that they perhaps need to go in a different direction. And if that's the case, we should be very welcoming and encouraging of that. But I don't think it begins with our agency. I think we need to pursue, first and foremost, the interests that we have vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, the maximum degree of support and defense of its sovereignty, territorial integrity, perhaps a kind of stabilization of the conflict at a certain point, and then a wait-and-see attitude when it comes to the Russian, the Russian population. But I myself, regrettably, entertain very little optimism about a changing course domestically in Russia in the next couple of years, or perhaps even a couple of decades. Final, final question. Uh, since uh, you are the author of, of the book The Abandonment of the West, uh, with this war, U.S. is very present in Europe. I mean, before the war, the whole discussion was turning around the U.S. pivot to Asia. How do you think U.S. will change after the war? I think that the war has reminded the United States of the fundamentals of its modern foreign policy, which is to say 20th century foreign policy. And despite the demographic and economic and other kinds of importance that the Indo-Pacific holds, American foreign policy has always been framed uh, around, um, around Europe. You could go back even to the 19th century, and since we're in Greece, it is important to note that the first conflict, European conflict, that comes to the sort of perception, the consciousness of Americans is in fact 1821 and uh, the, the movement of Greece out of, the, uh, out of the Ottoman Empire, which is enormously supported in the United States and was understood to be a kind of advance for um, you know, certain liberal ideas uh, in, in Europe in the first half of the 19th century. And that then uh, intensifies quite a bit in the 20th century with the First and the Second World Wars and the sort of role that the United States has has played. And so the centrality of Europe is, is, is one point. And I think Biden has been reminded of that. And in a way, he's embraced it perhaps as an old Cold Warrior and somebody who has a long career uh, before the collapse of the Soviet Union. It comes to a degree naturally, uh, naturally to Biden. 
The point that I would make is that this needs to be an integrated approach for the United States where the security concerns are probably first and foremost. That's why the U.S. gets involved. Certainly why it got involved in the 20th century, concerns about Germany and the military balance of power in Europe. And that's not less true with Ukraine than it was uh, in 1917 when the United States joined in the First World War or in 1941 when the United States entered the Second World War. But the way in which this has to be integrated is that there is also a cultural component. And although the United States is a multicultural immigrant society where people come from all over the world, this bond with Europe has a very strong cultural component. It's sort of where a lot of the intellectual orientation of the United States comes uh, and its commitment to democracy and its commitment to certain liberal ideas does come from uh, a, a European cultural inheritance. And so I think these two things need to be joined together still in the 21st century uh, and if you think of Ukraine, it does fit this narrative actually quite effectively because it is a democracy. Uh, it does see the war in 2022, I think rightly in my point of view, as about its democratic uh, sort of soul as a, a as a nation. And so in this sense, a lot of things come f full circle in the course of Ukraine. But the point, just to emphasize that it's not, it's not merely a military project for the United States, and it's certainly not just an economic project, but there is a cultural bond with Europe, which is very important. And it needs to be studied and sort of maintained, discussed, uh, and kept also in public consciousness as we, you know, sort of deal with the military uh, elements of this, of this struggle. Um, thank you very much uh, for your time and for being here with us today. We will keep it up to here and we hope to have you again in the future with us. I would be delighted. Such thank a, you. Such a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael.